Welcome to Dairy Stream, brought to you by the Dairy Business Association and Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative, sister organizations that fight for sensible dairy policy in Wisconsin and Washington, D.C. Dairy Stream focuses on issues affecting the dairy community and our customers. Hi, I'm your host, Mike Austin. Once again, it's great to be with you on Dairy Stream as we continue to give you information on important topics to the business of dairy. And today, it's a pleasure to have Tom Vilsack with us. He is the president and CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council. And we talk about all aspects of dairy. And one thing we probably don't put enough emphasis on is the export market. And I know, Tom, initially, we had talked a couple of years ago about trying to work uh, to increase exports and to try to get that up to 20%. I don't want to go specifically into where we are on those numbers, but maybe just uh, open up our conversation. Could you kind of stress the fact of why U.S. exports are so important to the dairy industry? Well, it's a pretty simple proposition. Our dairy farmers are the best in the world. They continue to produce more quality product, a product that is sustainably produced, that's safely produced, and it provides great nutrition and great flavor. And the versatility and the ability to basically shape dairy products into a variety of different products around the world. Uh, because they produce more, and despite the fact that we're consuming more dairy, both in terms of drinking dairy and also eating dairy, we still have uh, some left over. And so in order for us to stabilize the market, in order for us to get uh, prices that over time better support our dairy farmers and their families, it's necessary that we find a market for that additional product. And that market is the rest of the world. The United States represents a little bit about roughly 5% of the world's population, which means that 95% of the potential consumers of dairy live outside the U.S. So it makes sense to aggressively pursue an export market opportunity because we're going to continue to have product to sell and the world's going to continue to want U.S. dairy products. And obviously, by increasing that export market, say from 12% to as much as 15 or 20%, is also, bottom line, going to be more money for the industry. It, it should be. And, and I think one of the opportunities that exports present is for uh, government leaders to begin the process of taking a look at how dairy farmers are compensated. With the system today, it was designed at a time when the market was primarily, if not almost solely, domestic. Uh, added value opportunities that the export market represents aren't necessarily totally factored into how milk prices are established. So as folks begin to think about changes to that system, I hope that they consider taking into consideration more fully and completely the export value because we're, we're continuing to see increased value from the time we started our next 5% plan at the beginning of 2017. We have seen a, a marked increase in value, volume, and percentage of milk solids going into the export market. And we obviously hope we'll be able to continue that, notwithstanding the current challenges that we all face uh, with the virus. Our guest today is Tom Vilsack. He is the president and CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council. And if you're not familiar with the Export Council, its mission is to enhance demand for U.S. dairy products and ingredients by securing access and assisting suppliers to meet market needs that facilitate sales. And dairy farmers generally uh, help fund this program through the Dairy Management Incorporated and also the National Checkoff Program. And if you don't mind, Tom, maybe you can give us a little bit of insight on how the U.S. Dairy Export Council works to expand the U.S. dairy export opportunities. And I think it'd be interesting for our listeners if you can give them kind of a day-to-day -day process on what your team does around the world. <laughs> well, there's a lot going on, uh, notwithstanding the virus. Uh, let's start, first of all, about our marketing efforts. We have 
offices and people located around the world who work every single day to promote U.S. dairy products. We have folks who are working hard in China, uh, Korea, Japan, in Southeast Asia, in the Middle East and North Africa, Mexico, Central America, and South America. And these people are dedicated every single day to reaching out to potential customers to explain the benefits of U.S. dairy. Uh, to do that, we have a team of people that is dedicated not only to market development, but also to market insights, better understanding precisely what it is that the particular market looks for in products and how we might be able to meet that need. Uh, we have folks who are also working with universities and other partners uh, to develop new applications, new ways of using dairy ingredients in bakery items, for example, or in food manufacturing snacks and beverages. We obviously have a tremendous effort to, to promote U.S. cheese. Uh, that involves not only promoting cheese, but also educating uh, the next generation of chefs and food leaders in countries about the quality and versatility and functionality of U.S. cheeses. We are very pleased with the fact that we now can say that the at the World Cheese Contest and Awards Ceremony last year, we, we won a number of awards, including the Best Cheese in the World Award came from the U.S. And so there's an opportunity for us to really, really market. In addition, our team also uh, works with our current members of U.S. DEC to make sure that there are no barriers or difficulties in getting product into market. Each country has a different set of qualifications and requirements, and sometimes it becomes necessary for our team to help our members understand what those requirements are and to make sure that if there's a concern at a port or an issue that's arising in a government agency that we assist and help in alleviating that barrier. And speaking of barriers, our team works every single day with the U.S. Trade Representative's Office and the United States Department of Agriculture and the current administration to make sure that our trade policy is what it needs to be in order to give our dairy farmers and the dairy industry in this country a fair shake at those markets. For example, we worked recently with the Chinese government to arrange for the use of permeate uh, to be used not just in feed for their livestock industry, but also in food products. That's a big opportunity for us to create another market opportunity for some of our commodity-based products. We work with governments to reduce tariffs. We're currently working with the Vietnamese government in an effort to try to reduce tariffs. We did the same thing with the Chinese government a couple of years ago and resulted in a tariff reduction. So the team is constantly working to make sure that we reduce as much friction as possible. We also keep an eye on markets. We report to our members what we're seeing in terms of prices. Right now, U.S. dairy products are very competitively priced in the market, which is a, a, a good thing for us given in the current circumstance. So we're seeing uh, better than expected export numbers for the first three months of this year, notwithstanding the virus. Again, we're spending time with Tom Vilsack. He's the president and CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council, and he's giving us some insights into U.S. dairy exports and some of the challenges and opportunities they have. And just talk a little bit more about some of those challenges. What are some of the other challenges that you do face, such as you know just world competition, since we are on the world stage when it comes to uh, moving dairy, and also uh, geographical indicators, because obviously that's been a big story over the last couple of years. Definitely a big story. And we have two major competitors, our friends from New Zealand, been involved in the export market uh, opportunities for dairy for quite some time. Their country's economy is very dependent on the sale of, of dairy products around the world. Uh, we also compete with the European Union in a number of these markets. Both the European Union and New Zealand have been in the export business for a lot longer than we have. And so they have relationships, uh, they have the presence, they have in-country staff. They, their companies may also have specific locations or joint ventures or partnerships with food manufacturers uh, and with the dairy industry industry in a particular country. So the competition is stiff. 
and it's uh, it's important for us to be competitive, uh, not only on the tariffs and not only the trade policy, but also in terms of our ability to, to develop markets. Our friends in the European Union, I think, recognize that our farmers will continue to be the best in the world, will continue to produce more more product and more quality product. And so they're looking for a way to have a competitive edge. And that gets me into the discussion of geographic indications. This is a, a way in which the European Union is attempting to monopolize uh, the use of certain cheese names so that only their producers of the cheese can use that name in marketing. So just imagine if you had a, a Parmesan or a mozzarella or a Asiago cheese that you wanted to sell from the U.S. and you were competing against uh, a European competitor and the, that competitor would be allowed only uh, to use the, the term mo- mozzarella or Parmesan or Asiago. You would not be able to call your cheese that. Uh, you'd have to try to convince the consumer that despite the fact that you couldn't call it Parmesan or mozzarella or Asiago, it was in fact those cheeses. Uh, so it puts us at a very significant disadvantage if countries grant the European Union permission, if you will, to monopolize certain cheese names. So we, we really pushed back on that effort. Uh, the most recent USMCA trade agreement had a side letter in which Mexico agreed to, for the first time, to acknowledge the common names of many, many cheeses that are sold in the U.S. In, into the Mexican market, which is a way of protecting our interest in those common names. We often go into countries where a GI has been granted to raise questions about whether or not it was granted pursuant to law or even pursuant to the constitution of that particular country. And of course, in trade agreements that are currently being negotiated and discussed, uh, not the least of which is the current discussion with the United Kingdom, we're in the process of trying to make sure that our trade representative's office understands fully and completely the importance of protecting those GIs. And they certainly did a, a good job with USMCA and we're encouraging them to continue to do such a, jo- a good job with the negotiations that are taking place with the, the United Kingdom right now. Again, some good insights into GIs, which sounds so little but is so big when we talk about the, the U.S.'s dairy ability uh, to exports. And we'll be following that aspect of this story as we continue onward. Before we take our uh, break, I would like to ask a little bit, since you brought up uh, trade relationships, and look at the USMCA. And from your perspective, how do you see this as another positive step forward when it comes to dairy exports and trade in general? Well, it's a positive opportunity for us because it opens up just a bit our Canadian market opportunities. The tariff quotas have been increased for certain products, and and we're working now with our government to make sure that as Canada begins to implement uh, the USMCA on July 1st, that it does so in a way that's consistent with both the spirit and the letter of the agreement. Uh, We've had experiences with our Canadian friends from time to time where they interpret agreements a little bit differently than what was intended. And oftentimes what we think is a market opening opportunity doesn't turn out to be that. So we want to make sure that as they implement these expanded opportunities for us, that we in fact do get market opportunity to sell more product into the Canadian market. We also made a big effort, uh, which the administration recognized and was able to negotiate into the agreement, an end to what is called class six and class seven. It's a pricing system that the Canadians used in order to sort of, in essence, get rid of their surplus powder onto the world market as opposed to basically dealing with it within their supply management system in Canada. And what they did by doing that with this pricing system is that they undercut significantly the world prices for powder and negatively impacted the dairy producers in every country, including the U.S. We were able to negotiate in that agreement, the USMCA agreement, a elimination of class six and class seven and a replacement of those pricing systems with a different pricing system that we believe and, and hope will result in Canada not being 
being able to export its surplus but deal with it uh, within the confines of its supply management system. Uh, we'll see. Uh, we have to keep an eye, uh, again, on our Canadian friends to make sure that it's implemented properly. Uh, just today, I had an opportunity to review a letter uh, that we're sending. There's a a portion of the dairy industry in Canada that wants to make the activities of the Canadian government with reference to this issue of a less transparent, which would put our producers and certainly our government at a bit of a disadvantage in determining whether or not this agreement is being implemented properly. We are objecting to that and raising issues right now, even before the agreement is in force on July 1st, to make sure that it's it's done properly. And so that's that. there's an opportunity here, but we also have to keep an eye on implementation. On, on the Mexican side, it just simply preserves our number one market, which is important, obviously, to be tariff-free and to, to be frictionless in terms of the ability to sell product. This is a huge market opportunity for us. Uh, roughly 70 to 75% of all the dairy imports uh, that go into Mexico come from the U.S. It's about a third uh, of our total export opportunities. And so it's a, bit, it's a big market for us. So protecting that market was important. And then we, we mentioned the GI uh, letter earlier, and that certainly was incredibly important because it provides protection, uh, a, new, a new system to protect and make sure that GIs are not granted without us being able to weigh in and also that list of common name cheeses which are now protected. Very important. So certainly it is going to be a summer, hopefully, of progress. And we'll keep our eyes and ears open to all the details as of July the 1st. Another market that we're certainly keeping our eyes and ears on is China. And when we come back from our break, more details on that. Plus, how do current exports really get impacted by our global pandemic? All that is coming up. And we'll be right back with our Dairy Stream podcast after we hear from our sponsor. With high genetics and optimal efficiency, dairies are creating a sustainable future. That's why ST Genetics partners with dairy men and women to manage their female inventories and create only the most sustainable replacements. Through genomic testing, beef on dairy, and genetics focused on net merit and eco-feed, ST Genetics offers solutions to create sustainable and profitable futures. Visit stgen.com to learn more. The best way to predict the future is to create it. Welcome back to Dairy Stream produced by Dairy Business Association and Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative. I'm Mike Austin, and our guest today is Tom Vilsack. He's the president and CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council. And we've had a very good conversation talking about what the U.S. Dairy Export Council does for the dairy industry, plus some of the opportunities they provided and some of the progress we've made in enhancing our position on the world market. But obviously, a big market is China. And Tom, when we talk about that, can you kind of give us some insights on what are dairy export numbers, where they kind of stand with respect to China and compare them to the past and where they could go? Well, 2018 was a very good year for us in terms of overall exports. It set records both in volume and value. So obviously we were very interested in looking at ways in which we could potentially expand on that. 2019, obviously with the trade situation in China, the, the friction between the two countries, we saw a significant decline in activity on the dairy side and for that matter, all of agriculture. With the, the negotiation of the phase one trade agreement between the two countries, uh, we have seen a pickup of about 25% of activity for the first three months of this year compared to the first three months of 2019. 
it still does not meet to the level of where we were in 2018, but we are seeing some hopeful signs. You know, China had African swine fever. Now, that obviously impacted and affected their hog industry in a very serious way, and which in turn impacts and affects what they can buy and what they need to buy from the U.S. as it relates to dairy, because a lot of our product went into animal feed. So if you have fewer animals to feed, obviously, you're going to, you're going to need uh, less, uh, less product. Uh, we are seeing a pickup. Uh, in China on the way complex, which is a, is a good sign. Uh, there's opportunities there. I mentioned earlier that the, the fact that we've negotiated a, an opportunity to see permeate used in food as well as feed, that should open up a bit of an opportunity for that basic sort of low value commodity. Our cheese business uh, continues to look for opportunity. It's not as large as a Korea or Japan. The Chinese don't consume cheese uh, anywhere near as uh, at the level that we do. Just to give you a sense of this, the average American uh, consumes about 35 pounds of cheese a year. Uh, I think in Japan, the average uh, Japanese uh, consumer uh, consumes about five pounds of cheese per year. I think the Chinese are less than a pound. So there's tremendous growth opportunity, but but it's obviously something that we have to, to slowly introduce into the Chinese diet and consumer choice. One of the things we're doing in China is working a, a, a interesting partnership with Costco in Shanghai. They have a very large facility there that that serves a, a substantial number of folks. I think it's a, I think they have over a million uh, members to that Costco store. They get about five to six thousand customers a day uh, going into that store. It's a tremendous location. And we've been doing a sampling program until the virus hit. Uh, and now we're basically doing a, an advertising program uh, to, to increase sales and to, and to expose uh, the Chinese to uh, American cheeses. We're obviously working with the food service industry in China with the with the pizza companies. They're beginning to see a bit of interest in that. Uh, we work with Starbucks and the coffee companies that are expanding business opportunities to look for ways in which we can find a, an entry point, if you will. We have an interesting partnership with Zhang University, which is a university that's uh, sort of the leading university in China on food and food and ingredients. That partnership is working to develop new ways to use uh, ingredients in gels, breakfast bars, beverages, and things of that sort, trying to emphasize the important health and wellness aspects of uh, dairy ingredients. So a lot of different opportunities in China. I wouldn't say that it's the place where we have the today the greatest upside potential. I think Southeast Asia is probably at this point uh, a place where we see more immediate opportunity. However, China in the long term, if we can maintain relationships with uh, with that country, there's obviously a lot of consumers. A little concerned about this phase one agreement simply because I think there is a heightened tension between the two countries over the virus and over how the virus started and how it spread, et cetera. That war of words could potentially result in uh, an impact on the trade, phase one trade agreement. I hope it doesn't happen because obviously the Chinese market is an important market for us. That's a very interesting aspect. Uh, when we talk about barriers that we had mentioned uh, before we took our break, uh, I, I brought up several things. What about you know, political tensions of that? What kind of roadblocks is that kind of put up for you know the U.S. Dairy Export Council when you try to circumvent those to try to keep that trade channel open? Is, is that one of your challenges you face as well? It is because at any given moment, a trade policy a dispute may, may arise resulting in a situation where tariffs are assessed or retaliatory tariffs are assessed, which is certainly what happened with China. You know, it's also a situation where it impacts international organizations. And sometimes people don't realize the work that USDEC does in international organizations to protect the industry. By international organizations, I'm talking about Codex. I'm talking about organizations that basically set standards for products that are traded throughout the world. And depending upon how rigid those standards are, 
or how unscientifically based they may be, it may make it more difficult for the processes, the manufacturing processes that we use in the United States to be accepted in other parts of the world. We've worked very, very hard recently uh, under the next 5% plan with the expertise of Nick Gardner, who's a, a, an important member of our team working in the market access and regulatory portion of our uh, shop. And Nick has done a terrific job of negotiating in these international forums protections to, to either stop things that the European Union is trying to do that might make it more difficult for U.S. product to be sold or to advance ways in which uh, science and science-based regulations would be, would be approved. So that is an area that oftentimes is forgotten, but is an important area of the work that USDEC does for its members and for dairy farmers throughout the United States. Tom Vilsack is our guest here on Dairy Stream. He is the president and CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council. And we mentioned a lot of countries, and I think people are aware of some of the big trading partners. But let's kind of look at potential. And just from your perspective, once again, when you look out on the horizon, where are we working now and where were we, do you think we might be able to get a larger market share into the future when you talk about other countries that are maybe a little bit below the surface when we talk about where our real dairy export potential may lie. Well, we made a decision two years ago to locate the first U.S. Dairy Center of Excellence in Singapore to essentially provide a very specific statement to Southeast Asia that we were very interested, we meaning the U.S. dairy industry, very interested in having a permanent presence in that part of the world because we saw the opportunity there, the immediate opportunity there to really sell product. A lot of young countries, Vietnam, Thailand, uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, the Philippines, a lot of young people in those countries, uh, rising middle classes, urbanized population, uh, which basically tends to want to eat out a bit more to use, you know, the fast food restaurants that where we can sell product. And so it's an opportunity for us uh, to have a permanent location with permanent staff working 24-7 to promote U.S. dairy products in that important market. Uh, so that's one area where we think there is tremendous opportunity. Uh, we obviously think there's a continued opportunity in the Middle East and North Africa. You know, this is an area that has uh, not as many people as Southeast Asia, perhaps not the, the rising level of middle class consumers, but it has, has some very incredibly uh, wealthy consumers. I, I use the example of the United Arab Emirates. Eighty-five uh, percent of the population in that state was was not is not from the United Arab Emirates. They are people that have come to that location. The average uh, family income is about one hundred and thirty-five thousand dollars U.S. So you have pretty significant prosperity because of the oil industry and the businesses that do business in in the UAE. And so it's an opportunity for us to showcase some of our high-end cheeses. So we have an interesting retail program there where we're training folks behind the counter uh, in grocery stores to to uh, try and to utilize U.S. cheeses. We're coming up with a variety of recipes and ways in which we can market uh, that opportunity. And I think it's fair to say that uh, while Mexico is our number one market, we haven't forgotten about the opportunities that may be in Central America and South America. And so we're beginning to work in Chile and Peru, places where we think there may be appetite for U.S. cheese uh, to begin developing an effort. And then finally, I think long, long, long term, the reason why we're interested in the U.S. government's negotiations with Kenya, one half of the world's increased population uh, over the next 15 to 20 years, I, I'm told, will, will come from the African continent. 
So you're going to have a tremendous number of consumers in many of those countries. And as we can identify countries where there's sufficient stability, political stability and, and economic stability, uh, there's another opportunity potentially for us to compete with our European friends to provide product to a growing population. So there's, there's going to continue to be a demand for dairy protein. There's going to continue to be an understanding of the power of dairy protein in terms of preventing stunting, uh, the importance of uh, allowing folks to age well. Uh, we're seeing a lot of activity in that area and some of the older populations in Asia, in Japan, South Korea, uh, beginning to see uh, dairy opportunities there. So there's a lot of opportunity and we're going to need that opportunity because, again, our producers continue to produce more. And while we're consuming more in the U.S., we can't keep pace in terms of consumption with the production capabilities of our great farmers. And so we're going to continue to look for markets among those 95% of the world's consumers that live outside the U.S. Well, for those of you that have been following our Dairy Stream podcast, you realize that we always try to bring up some type of optimistic aspect during our conversation. I think Tom Vilsack has done a great job of making us feel optimistic about what could be happening on the export front and dairy in general. So we thank him for that because, again, our guest is Tom Vilsack. He's the president and CEO of U.S. Deck, And we want to kind of close talking a little bit about uh, what's currently going on. And we are recording this episode during a global pandemic crisis. So could we talk a little bit about COVID-19 and really what that's meant to the dairy export market and where we currently stand? Look, this is a tragic circumstance and situation. And my heart goes out to every single family that's been impacted and affected here and around the world uh, by this virus. Obviously, a lot of people have become ill and, and far too many have, have died. But it has been a major disruption uh, to, the, to the supply chain in this country and also in other countries. We began obviously seeing the onset of this in Asia in the latter part of 2019, the early part of 2020. Same kind of circumstance that occurred there that has occurred here. Well, first, the schools were shut down, so the kids were sent home. That really impacts and affects dairy uh, locally. Uh, the milk that these kids would consume at, at school isn't being consumed at school, obviously. It may not be being consumed in, at, at the home. And so there was a tremendous pressure on the on the local and regional dairy industry of, of the Asian countries where the virus first hit, you know, which resulted in them having to shift uh, production from fluid milk to the butter that generated more powder. That powder competes with the powder that we would otherwise import into those countries. And so it, it's a rippling and cascading effect uh, of this virus. Food service shuts down, so the impacts and affects the amount of cheese that is needed. And while retail sales and online sales and home delivery of food increased significantly, it wasn't the same as uh, what they would have received at a quick service restaurant or a high-end restaurant. Uh, so there's been significant disruption. The first three months of this year, surprisingly, export numbers were up compared to 2019. Now, 19 was a pretty decent year. It wasn't a great year, but it was a pretty decent year. Uh, and we saw an increase uh, from January, February, March of about 40,000, 44,000 metric tons more of product was sold in that first three months of 2020 than 2019, which was very surprising. Uh, the value of that product was also up uh, roughly $230 million more in value. Now, that's the first three months. Uh, we're always a couple of months behind with the data. So in a couple of weeks, we'll receive uh, the data for, for April. And the expectation will be that the numbers will see some reduction because of what has occurred uh, in many of those export markets. 
at the same time, we're beginning to see those markets open back up again. And so uh, the hope and belief is that while we may see a bit of a dip in the next couple of months on export numbers, uh, that they rebound uh, nicely. And at the end of the year, we're, we're beginning to see positive export numbers. Even so, comparing the first three months, 2020, to the first three months of 2016, which was the year before we began this uh, significant effort to deepen our presence in export markets, we see about 109,000 metric tons of product more being sold first three months in 2020 than in 2016. And the value of that product was uh, over half a billion dollars more in those first three months. So what we're doing in terms of deepening presence, more people, more promotions, more partnerships is working. We just have to make sure that it continues, notwithstanding the hiccup that we've seen uh, over the last couple of months because of the virus. And then on top of all of that, we have to, and we have to gauge the impact of this virus on the overall global economy. Obviously, if we have a recession, depending upon the depth of that recession, the length of that recession, that may impact and affect what we're able to sell in markets around the world. But we are competitively priced right now. Uh, oftentimes, our, our cheeses may be a little bit more expensive than some of the other cheeses, but now they are not. Uh, and so I think there is an opportunity for us to steal a, a percent or two of market share in a number of these markets while we are waiting for that recovery from the virus. So we'll be interesting to see what the numbers look like in the next couple of months. Well, Tom, we appreciate the fact you're letting us steal some of your precious time. And I know it's gone too quickly. So if you would, could you just kind of close our podcast conversation by giving us a final thought that you would have for dairy farmers and processors to you know, try to give them a little bit of confidence as we look into the future? First of all, again, best in the world. And I know that the last uh, three, four, five years have been pretty difficult for dairy farmers across the country. We were very optimistic at the beginning of uh, 2020 that we would see better prices, optimistic because of the phase one Chinese agreement, because of the implementation of the USMCA, because of what we were able to negotiate with Japan. And we, we were really kind of confident that we would see a very good year in 2020. Obviously, the virus has impacted that, but I, I think we're we're headed in the right direction. We are selling more product. We are selling higher value product. Uh, we're selling more milk solids going into the export market, taking a bit of the pressure off the domestic market a bit. The hope is that that continues. Uh, the hope is that the, the relief that dairy farmers uh, are receiving, the purchases that are uh, taking place uh, here domestically, uh, will allow folks to stay in business to get through uh, this very difficult time and get on the, the other end uh, where we're right back where we were at the beginning of the year, optimistic for a strong end to 2020 and a, and a good 2021. Uh, I'm confident in this industry long term. Uh, there are an awful lot of consumers out there that are going to need dairy protein. There are an awful lot of consumers that are now being introduced. The quality, the versatility, the functionality, the value, the sustainably produced, safely produced products that were, are being produced here in the U.S. And there's great confidence around the world in, in the U.S. dairy industry. And, and, and we've got a great story to tell. We have a, a story of great sustainability. And, and sometimes people fail to realize that U.S. producers are the only producers in the world that are currently operating under a, a a internationally certified animal welfare standard. They are, along with their Canadian counterparts, the only dairy farmers in the world that have recently reduced greenhouse gas emissions. And so these sustainability points are really important in terms of being able to appeal to consumers around the world that have deepening concerns about the impact of climate and the impact of agriculture on the climate. We have a good story to tell. And I think that story, as we tell it, will allow us to, to penetrate these markets and, and take full advantage of growing populations and uh, increased demand. It certainly is a good story to tell. And 
One of the better storytellers is Tom Vilsack. Again, we thank him for his time here on Dairy Stream. Tom is the president and CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council and also a former secretary of agriculture. And on both those fronts, we thank him very much for what he's done, not only for dairy and agriculture in general, but also our entire nation. And it's great to have people like Tom in leadership positions at these times of crisis. We thank you for your time. I want to thank uh, Joanna Guza for producing today's Dairy Stream. We wish you well. And again, we hope that you will continue to stay safe and continue to be the best and most dedicated producers in the world. This is Dairy Stream. The Dairy Business Association and Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative would like to thank you for listening to Dairy Stream. If you enjoyed listening to our podcast, please subscribe and rate Dairy Stream. We value your feedback. And if there's something you'd like to hear, just email us podcast at dairyforward.com.